Well, as I just mentioned, uh, over the past week, I was in Chicago for a national uh, conference, and it was a great time uh, for encouragement, a great time for refreshment. Um, lots of other church leaders and pastors uh, there, and, uh, and it was just, it was really, really encouraging, not just to connect with people from the United States, but also uh, from people um, who are part of the EFCA from across the globe. And one of the things that was emphasized uh, during uh, our, our, uh, this, this conference was uh, our denomination's mission. Uh, our denomination's focus, and, and one of the things that, that we were reminded of over and over and over again is that the EFCA, uh, the Evangelical Free Church of America, is this movement that exists uh, to see the multiplication of, of disciple-making movements among all people. So not just here in the United States, but among all people, uh, that we would see disciple-making take place, that the spread of the gospel would take place uh, to the ends of the earth. And on Wednesday evening, there was actually this celebration service where we actually got to see how God is at work amongst all these different people groups, amongst all these different nations uh, here in the United States, but also uh, to the ends of the earth. And as I've reflected on this past week and I've thought about uh, uh, just you know, how, how encouraged I was during this time, uh, how, how uh, this focus was on this denominational emphasis uh, on the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. I, I also just uh, spent some time looking at crosswinds and, and thinking about, okay, well, what about, what about us? Uh, not just our commitment here in, in Spencer and the surrounding communities to spread the gospel, uh, but also what, what is our role in spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth? And in, in with that in mind, I want us to do something a bit unusual uh, this morning. I want us to look at a text that we've actually already looked at. We looked at it a couple years ago in February when we were going through the, the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, we, were, we were working our way through 1 Timothy, and one of the texts that we went through, of course, was 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. And there is this beautiful passage, this powerful passage that focuses on, on our commitment as a local church uh, to be a part of God's global mission. And so this morning, I want us to just look at that text, and I want us to be reminded, if we've heard this before, I want us to, to hear it for the first time, uh, if, if we haven't heard it before, of what our responsibility is as a local church. Uh, for, for everyone that's gathered here who's a part of, of Crosswinds, whether you're actually a member or you're just a regular attender, what is our commitment as a local church to the global church, to God's global mission, God's global cause. And so we're going to look at that this morning from 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 7. So I invite you to open up um, if, you, uh, if you have your Bible with you. And that passage, the first half of 1 Timothy chapter 2, it's all about prayer. It's all about Paul charging this church in Ephesus to pray, to pray for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And in fact, it, it as we look at this passage this morning, I think it really boils down to just one simple truth, and that's this. The local church has a global mission to pray. The local church has a global mission to pray. And that's not just for crosswinds. That's for every local church. No matter where you are, God has, has charged the local church to have this global mission to pray. And if you've ever had the opportunity to, to travel internationally and, and worship with brothers and sisters in different countries, it is actually humbling to see how much they pray for the spread of the gospel here in the United States. 
how they pray for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so this charge is not just one for Crosswinds. It's actually a charge for every local church, but I think it's a, a particularly important one for us to hear this morning, that the local church has a global mission to pray. It's this charge that Paul gives to this church in Ephesus. And if you're familiar with the context of, of the, the New Testament, this church in Ephesus uh, was, was founded by Paul, and even though it had its own needs, even though it had its own issues, and, and it had its own things that it needed to pray about for itself, Paul charges it in 1 Timothy and says, you cannot lose sight of this vision to pray for the church around the globe. And over the last couple of months, our, our elders and our deacons have, have really felt this, this uh, tug on our hearts to renew our commitment as a church to pray. We haven't talked specifically about global prayer, but we have talked about prayer. And in a month or so, we're going to look at a four-week series on prayer. How do we pray? What is God calling us to pray for? And so it's in that mindset that we actually turn our attention here to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now, this isn't to say that global prayer is the only thing that God wants us to pray for. Our church has the capacity, um, it has the, the capacity both in, in leadership units, it also has the capacity financially to, to not just commit to, to praying for the global church, but actually to be a sending church. That God has called us, uh, like he has called every church, to, to be a sending church as God raises up those who are called into the mission field. As those who are called into cross-cultural missions, God calls the local church to be senders, to, to send individuals, and to send those who are, who are called to, to do his work to the ends of the earth. And our church also has the capacity to be a going church. We live in a very unique cultural context. hundred years ago, we would not have had the ability to, to go visit missionaries as easily as we can today. We would not have the ability to go and experience God's work on, on, the, uh, on the mission field the way we are able to do today. And so we have this opportunity, we have this capacity to not just be a sending church, but also to be a, a going church as God allows. And there are many commitments when it comes to, to our involvement in, in the way God is at work amongst the nations that, that we can make and that we should make. But this passage tells us, and we're going to look at this passage here in a few moments, this passage tells us that a global mission to pray is the most important thing that we can do. It is the most important way that we can contribute to the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth is to be a praying church. And Paul writes to this church in Ephesus, and he says, I don't want you to lose your commitment to global prayer. But Paul founded this church in Ephesus. That from its inception, it was a church-planting church. The reason why the gospel spread throughout Asia Minor is primarily because the church in Ephesus sent out church planters. It was a part of their, their DNA from the very beginning. And so Paul says, I don't want you to lose sight of that other-mindedness. And the same thing is true this morning. We cannot lose our commitment to global spanning prayer. And if we, we lost that already, we need to regain it. We need to reclaim it as a part of who God is calling us to be as a local church. And so as we approach this text this morning, Paul gives us three truths, three things to focus on uh, about the centrality 
of prayer to, to a healthy church. But he focuses specifically on global prayer. And so it's, it's my prayer that this morning God would awaken within each of us this heart to pray. But even more than just a, a heart to pray, that God would awaken within each and every one of us this heart to pray for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. For the, for the gospel to spread among the Fulani people of Nigeria, for the gospel to spread among the Kechu people of Peru, for the gospel to spread among the, the Kalesh people of Pakistan, and on and on and on. That God would, would urge us, that, that God would stir in us this desire to pray for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. But I think if we're, if we're being honest this morning, uh, many of us w- would say, okay, I, I, I like that idea. I like this idea of committing to pray for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's a good thing. That's a, that's a noble thing. And, and yet I, I struggle with just praying, period. So how, how, am, I able to, how am I supposed to focus on, on these globally spanning prayers if, if I can't just pray, or I struggle with prayer in, in the first place. And a few moments ago, I said that we, we live in a culture that uh, is, is completely different than it was 100 years ago, where we can go, where we can go visit missionaries in a way that, like never before. But at the same time that that new cultural climate, this new technology that allows us to travel has made it easier for us to connect to the spread of the gospel in foreign nations, it also, I think, has made it far more difficult for us to commit to praying. There are so many distractions today. There are so many things that vie for our attention that it is hard for us to pray. In fact, I think if we look at Western culture as a whole, we live in this culture that perpetuates many myths about prayer. I want to look at just three of them as we jump into this text. The first one is this. Prayer is hard. We live in a culture that, that convinces us that, that prayer is just too hard. I, I can't pray. I, I, don't, I don't know how to pray. I don't, I don't know the right things to say. I, I can only say focus on one or two things at a time. And many of us think that, that the reason that I, I can't pray is because I haven't been taught how to pray the right way. We have this this culture that, that tells us that, that prayer is just too hard. It's too hard for me, at least. But the Bible says otherwise. Many of Jesus' sayings on having a faith like a child are, are tied up in this commitment to, to pray. The New Testament tells us that we don't have to worry about finding the right things to say to God because the Spirit himself, God himself, will say, I got you. Let me intercede for you in Romans chapter 8. We are told that we can approach the throne of God with confidence in Hebrews chapter 4. We're told that we are to make our requests, whatever they are, known to God. Prayer doesn't have to be hard. J.C. Ryle is a theologian from the early 1800s, and he, he said it this way, Prayer is the simplest means that man can use in coming to God. It is within the reach of all, the sick the aged, the infirm, the paralytic, the blind, the poor, the unlearned, all can pray. It avails you nothing to plead from lack of memory and lack of learning and lack of books and lack of scholarship in this matter. So long as you have a tongue to tell your soul's state, you may and ought to pray. Prayer is not too hard for any of us. God is a loving Father who delights 
to hear from his children, who, who does not require us to use this certain formula or a certain set of words to, to be said before our prayers are acceptable to him. Prayer, prayer is, is not hard. He simply asks us to come. But at the same time, the, the, there's this myth in our culture that, that prayer is not hard. There's also this myth that, that says prayer is easy. Prayer is easy. There's this tendency to confuse the simplicity of prayer, that God hears all of, our, all of our prayers, that God meets us where we're at with this easiness. And paradoxically, the, these two diametrically opposed myths, prayer is hard and prayer is easy, they actually end in the same results, the same paralysis of prayer. Many of us do not pray because we think that if we are a good Christian, then prayer would be easy for us. And since it isn't easy for us, then there's no real point for us in praying. And the reality is prayer may not be hard, but it certainly is not easy. It takes discipline. It takes hard work to, to die to self and devote time to prayer. It takes this mindset that is the opposite of the busyness of our culture to say that the most important thing that I can do is not to go, 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 but it is instead to stop and to pray. I said earlier that our highest calling when it comes to the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth isn't to go which isn't true for everyone, but, but it is instead to, to pray. And maybe that statement rubs you the wrong way, and it seems as if this is, this is an abdication of our, our duty, and it's perhaps because we have undervalued the importance and power of prayer and the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. That we have undervalued the power of prayer and the spread of the gospel here. And Spencer, is it possible that we think that prayer is simply just too easy? Well, of course we're going to pray, but then we don't actually do it. Tim Keller sums it up this way. Prayer can be simple, but it is not easy. Nothing great ever is. Nothing great ever is. The greatness of prayer means that oftentimes we'll have to struggle with our own flesh, that we'll have to struggle with our own sinful desires and pray. See, even as prayer is not too hard for any of us, at the same time, we have to recognize that it is not easy for any of us either. The final lie that we are prone to here in the American church is simply this, prayer does no good. Prayer does no good. Another way of wording this lie is something like this, prayer is a waste of time. Prayer, uh, prayerlessness is, is so common in the American church and in American Christians today because I don't, I don't know how many of us actually believe that we will see tangible fruit from our prayers. Many of us have, have likely experienced something like this. We, we pray for something for months and months and months or even years and years or decades and decades and we don't see any fruit. We pray to God that, to save family members who don't know him, but after years... We eventually give up because we've seen little change in them. What's the point? We wonder why on earth is God not listening? Well, God, if you wanted to answer our prayers, you would have done so already. And so we give up. And we miss the sweetness of God actually answering those prayers. Many of you know the name George Mueller. He was an inner city missionary uh, in Bristol, England in the 1800s. And for 50 years, uh, Mueller prayed 
for two men to become converted, to, to give their life to Christ. And he prayed for 50 years, and he saw no fruit in their lives. And yet he committed to it. He, he continued to persist in prayer. And near the end of his life, right before he died, one of those two men gave, gave their life to Christ. He finally saw fruit after 50 years of faithfully praying. And as for the other one, he, died, he, he, he became a Christian shortly after Mueller died. God answers prayers. Our culture is ruled by this mentality of instant gratification. Amazon Prime tells me that if I can't get anything that I want in two days or less, then it's not worth having. Instant streaming of movies and television shows, apps on our phones and on our computers, all of these things reinforce that anything that is worth having is worth having right now. And in this culture of instant gratification, this persistence in prayer suffers. And oftentimes it dies. We have no stamina for prayer. We're too short-minded. God delights in answering prayers, but he rarely sees fit to answer those prayers after five minutes. God delights to answer our prayers, but, but oftentimes he makes us wait. He makes us persist in prayer. He delights in, in bringing prayers that, to, to fruition, to, to let them bear fruit. But it's not necessary that we will see that fruit tomorrow. This is probably true in our own lives, and it's, uh, lives, and it's also especially true in, in global missions. God works in a completely different timetable than us. Completely different timetable than us because he is God. If you look at and read biographies of famous missionaries, you will see story after story after story of these missionaries who, who, who their lives begin with fruitlessness. They go onto the mission field and they are, they are frustrated because of a lack of fruit. Hudson Taylor is known as the founder of missions to China and he waited 11 years before he saw God's spirit begin to work actively in China. Adinaram Judson waited six years before his first convert in Asia. Joanne Shetler was depressed after having only two converts after five years of ministry in the Philippines. It is difficult to persist in ministry. It is difficult to persist in prayer, especially in the, the hard soil of the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. God does answer prayer, but he rarely answers with the immediacy that we often desire. And what's more, uh, and we're going to touch on this in a, in a month or so when we, we look at this topic of prayer, but I think many of our prayers can go unanswered because the majority of our prayers are just focused on secondary or even tertiary issues as opposed to primary things. Let me, let me explain that. There's, there's nothing inherently wrong. In fact, it's good to pray for, for healing for family members and friends who get sick. Pa Paul does that in the New Testament. There, there's nothing wrong with uh, prayer for the improvement of our day-to-day -day lives, things like uh, relational reconciliation, a job, uh, or, or a better job, or, or the means to meet our needs at the end of the month, these kind of things. In fact, Paul does so when he's praying for other people in, in the New Testament. But if we are honest with ourselves, these aren't the things that are of most importance in the Bible, and they're not of most importance to God's heart. Now, now don't get me wrong. 
God delights to hear all of our prayers, but just consider the content of our prayers with the content of Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 1. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in the heavenly places at his right hand, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul's primary concern when he's writing to the church in Ephesus isn't that they would have their ailments cured. It isn't that they would have their discomforts eliminated. It is that God would increasingly open their eyes, the eyes of their hearts, so that they could more fully grasp this incredible weight of glory of this salvation that God has given to them, of what God has done for them. The same is true at the beginning of Colossians. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with, God, with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul is writing to this church in Colossae and this church in Colossae is dealing with heresy and, and, and Paul says that the most important thing that I can pray for you is not this just nebulous Jesus be with them, He's going to say in verse 27 of Colossians chapter 1, Jesus dwells with you, so there's, there's no reason for me to say, Jesus, be with them. His primary concern is this concrete prayer that they would increasingly live lives that are more and more and more worthy of Jesus, more and more and more pleasing to him, bearing more and more and more fruit, growing more and more and more in wisdom and knowledge of his will. And if you look at the prayers of Paul in the New Testament and you look at Jordan's own prayers, you can tell that there is quite a difference there. And is it possible that one of the reasons why our culture is, is so bad at praying and, and we see so little prayer being answered is because our prayers are saturated with secondary and tertiary things and we neglect the things of highest importance in God's eyes? Is it possible that we live in this climate of prayerlessness because we expect instant answers to prayer when God delights in his children coming to him over and over and over, children who are persistent in their prayer to him. If we as a church, if we as Christians are to overcome the lies that are found in our culture when it comes to prayer, what should we do? Well, I think it starts with Paul's command here to begin praying globally. 
So let's look at Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 1. First, Paul tells us that global comprehensive prayers are central to the church's mission. They are central to the church's mission. If we want to be a healthy church, we have to be a church of prayer. If we want to be healthy Christians, we must be a people of prayer. What's more, we must be a church and a people that pray not just locally but globally for the spread of the gospel to all nations. Hear these words from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Paul writes these words just moments after warning the church uh, in, in Ephesus about this uh, false teaching. There, there's this rise in speculation and in myths and endless genealogies. And, and Paul says, hey, instead of wasting your time with all of these things, here's where you should really focus your efforts. This is where you should really focus your efforts. First of all, those words highlight the, the primacy of prayer in the church's mission. Prayer is not this added afterthought, but it is the most important thing that Paul says the church can be doing. And is that the same thing that we see in our own lives and in our own church? You see, much has been said trying to parse the differences between these four terms that Paul uses uh, here. He uses supplication, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving. Supplication, uh, just a word that, that uh, gives this idea of asking or, or begging a superior for some need to be filled. Intercession is this word that, that means something similar, focusing on a prayer for, for other people. Thanksgiving, of course, means thanksgiving. Prayer, a generic word for communion with God. And what's important for us is not to get caught up in some sort of legalistic uh, understanding of this text that says that true prayer must include all four of these things. Now, Paul is, is, is just describing all types of prayer, and he's, he's saying, what I want you to do is I want you, every single time you pray, offer up all types of prayer. Every single time you pray, whatever you're praying like, I want you to offer up all prayers for all people. This notion of all is found throughout these verses. It's found throughout this passage over and over and over again. Verse 1, for all people. Verse 2, for kings and all who are in high positions. Verse 3, God our Savior desires all people to be saved. Verse 4, Christ Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. Over and over, Paul is focusing on comprehensive prayers on behalf of a comprehensive group. So consider just briefly four charges for the church from these first two verses. First, the, char the church offers all prayers for all people. All prayers for all people. It is our responsibility as a church to be praying for all people in our church body and in our community. There is an indiscriminate call to prayer here, to pray for everyone regardless of their background. If the church is going to take their mission to global and comprehensive prayer seriously, then it starts with praying for everyone here at Crosswinds, in Spencer, in our communities. Get on the prayer chain. Submit your prayer requests, requests through the prayer chain so we can be praying for you. The church offers all prayers for all people. 
Second, the church offers all prayers for all leaders. Paul transitions to a specific charge. He says, we are to pray for all leaders regardless of their faith or their lack of faith. And interestingly, Paul gives this specific prayer and he gives a reason behind it at the end of verse 2. He says, the first and primary reason why you're supposed to pray for those who are in positions of leadership is for the flourishing of of the Christian community. Paul is writing during the time of this persecution under Nero, and and he calls on the church to pray for government leaders so that the church might flourish. Third, the church is offered offer up all prayers for all enemies. You see, Paul's words here for praying for our leaders has a second meaning as well. Prayer, uh, when Paul wrote this letter, uh, persecution of, of Christians was increasingly common under Nero. Nero is famous for not liking the layout of Rome. And to fix that, he decided to start a fire to rebuild it. Burned half of his uh, capital city. And he decided to blame the Christians for it. And Christians were subsequently persecuted because of that. Nero used Christians as human torches in his garden. Nero eventually killed Paul and many of the other apostles. And yet, even in this context of hate and hostility, Paul says the church is to pray for them. Now, here in the United States, praise God, we don't, we don't deal with this overtly hostile government toward the church, at least not the way we did in, or the church did in the first century. But there are many facets of society that are hostile toward the gospel. And Christians are not to deride their enemies. They're not to make fun of them. They're not to mock them. They're not to hate them. They're instead called to pray for them. The church offers up all prayers for all enemies. Fourth and finally, the church offers up all prayers for all peoples. We began by saying that we are called to pray for all people. Now we expand that vision and say God calls us to pray for all peoples, to to pray for peoples to the ends of the earth, for the salvation of those who do not know Jesus. In the Bible, the term nations means something that what we oftentimes think of in the modern day sense. When we think of nation, we think of the 195 or so different countries that exist on on the earth. But a nation in the Bible is not defined by these arbitrary boundaries between different sovereign states. It's instead defined by different groups of people who share a common culture or who share a common language. And so, like I said, about 195 or so different sovereign states in the world, but there are uh, over 16,000 different people in the world or in the biblical understanding of the word nation. 16,000 different people groups. What, what defines a people group? According to this missions conference, uh, the Lausanne conference, it, it says a people group is this, the largest group within which the gospel can spread as a church planting movement without encountering barriers of understanding or acceptance. So, so there's all these different people groups, and there's this website called the Joshua Project, and I encourage you to check it out. It's one of the leading resources uh, uh, cataloging the spread of Christianity around the world. It estimates that there are over 17,000 different people groups, of, of which only about 3,250 have been fully reached. Or in other words, those who have sustainable church planning movements indigenous to the people group. 
This past Monday, I had lunch with a missionary friend who, who's uh, calling is to focus on establishing these reproducible pastoral training movements among the different nations. And he shared some of the different uh, efforts he's been a part of in, in northern Uganda, where they actually had to press pause on pastoral training because they, they needed to finish translating the Bible first. These people didn't have the Bible in their own heart language, and that was their greatest need. And that's the greatest need of, of many different nations, is, is to have the Bible in their own heart language. How many of you speak a different language, just out of curiosity? Any, anyone? Can you imagine having to, to, to read the Bible, not, not in English, but having to learn Spanish to read the Bible? Or, or fill in the blank, a different language there. And that's, that's what many people across the globe have to do. They don't, they don't have the Bible in their own language. And Paul's focus here is not just on individual people. His, his focus is on people groups. He wants the church in Ephesus, and by extension us, he wants us to be a catalyst for prayer for those 6,700 unreached people groups, for those 1,100 minimally reached people groups, those 5,500 partially reached people groups. It's not that we cease to pray once a group is reached, but instead it's a reminder that we are called to make prayers for all peoples, not just for all people. And what is the context of these prayers, you might ask? Well, what should we be praying for when we pray for all people, when we pray for all leaders, when we pray for all enemies, when we pray for all these different people groups? Paul gives us a part of the, these prayers should be focused on this atmosphere that allows the church to flourish at the end of verse 2. But the primary focus is that people would come to a saving knowledge of the truth, verses 3 and 4. Paul says that the most important thing that you can pray for someone is not for God to bless them. It is not for their physical well-being. It is not for their provision today. It is for their soul to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Jesus himself says this, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul? By extension, what does it profit a person if God answers your prayers for someone and they are healed, they do live a good life, they do have relational harmony, and yet their soul is still unchanged and they're still far from God? These prayers are central to the mission that God has entrusted to us as a church. Paul explains why in the next two verses, verses three and four. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Why are, globally, why are global prayers central to the, to the church's mission? It's because global, comprehensive prayers are central to God's heart. They are central to God's heart. Paul tells us that the reason we should be praying for all people, for all different types of people, is because it pleases God. It pleases God. This, at the beginning of verse 3, points back to this command to make all prayers for all different types of people. Our commitment to pray for the nations is, is found in the heart of God. Paul reminds us that we have a God who has this loving heart for all different types of people. People God wants to see saved in verse 4. He wants them all to come to a knowledge of the truth. God desires that Jews and Gentiles be saved. He desires that Democrats and Republicans be saved. He desires that the rich and the poor be saved. He desires that every single person be saved. 
when we pray for all different types of people to be saved, we are aligned with the heart of God. And that is one of the most important parts of global prayer. When we pray what God wants us to pray, our hearts and our desires are aligned with his. E. Stanley Jones was a great missionary, and he once wrote this, If I throw out a boat hook from the boat and catch hold of the shore and pull, do I pull the shore toward me, or do I pull myself toward the shore? Prayer is not pulling God to my will, but aligning my will to do the will of God. Richard Baxter, a Puritan reformer, once wrote this, Let your heart yearn for your ungodly neighbors. Alas, there is but a step between them and death and hell. Many hundred diseases are waiting, ready to seize on them, and if they die unregenerate, they will be lost forever. Have you hearts of rock that cannot pity men in such a case as this? Do you not care who is damned as long as you are saved? If so, you have sufficient cause to pity yourselves, for it is a frame of spirit utterly inconsistent with grace. Do you live close by them, or do you meet them in the streets, or work with them, or travel with them, or sit and talk with them, and say nothing to them of their souls? If their houses were on fire, you would run and help them. Will you not help them when their souls are almost at the fire of hell? When we pray for the things that stir God's heart, our own hearts will be stirred as well. And the testimony of church history reminds us that when the local church, when churches like us commit to pray for the nations, God begins to work among the nations. I mentioned a few at the beginning of our sermon, uh, this woman named Joanne Shetler. She, she didn't see fruit in her ministry in the Philippines for five years. And after five years, she comes home on furlough as a missionary, and she tells her home church well, just how big of a struggle this has been. The burden she has experienced as, as she's ministered faithfully and she hasn't seen any fruit. And so her home church says, hey, we're going to pray for you. And we're going to pray zealously for God to use you. And they committed to do that for the next 15 years. And she had 15 bountiful years of ministry in the Philippines. God desires to answer the prayers of his people for the salvation of all nations because those prayers are central to his heart. He delights in answering those prayers. Will we become a people that are committed to global prayer? Paul concludes this section on globally minded prayer with the source of these prayers in verses 5 through 7. Global comprehensive prayers flow from Christ's redeeming work. They flow from Christ's redeeming work. Starting in verse 5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Here in these three verses, Paul gives us three reasons why we are called to pray for the nations. First, we pray because God deserves the praise of all nations. He deserves the praise of all nations. Paul begins by declaring that there is only one God. He is the creator of all, and by implication, he is the Lord of all. He is the Lord of every single people group in the world. And because of that, he deserves the praise of every single people group in the world. Why do we pray? It's because God deserves the praise of all nations. 
Second, we pray this way because Jesus died to save all people. He died to save all people. Paul makes it clear that there is only one person who can save, and that is Jesus, the God-man Jesus Christ. What's more, Paul reminds us that Jesus died specifically for that, to save people from every language, tribe, and nation. The worship of heaven declares this truth with Revelation chapter 5. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take this scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Why is it that we pray for the spread of the gospel through the nation? Is it because Jesus died for all of the nations. It is through his blood that he purchased people from every tribe and language and people and nation for the glory of his Father. Jesus has this glorious inheritance that he will receive from his Father that includes people from every tribe and language and nation. And we pray because we believe that. And we believe that we want to see it come to pass. Jesus died for all people. And finally, we pray because we are called to global missions. We are called to global missions. Jesus' charge to the church to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth doesn't rest with a select few. It doesn't rest with uh, those who are uh, people like Paul or Hudson Taylor or William Carey or the missionaries our church supports. The charge to bring the gospel to the nations, it rests with every single person at Crosswinds, with every other local church. It rests with us. And God may not call you to the ends of the earth. In fact, he probably won't call the majority of us. But he does call all of us to pray. God, in his incredible wisdom, has entrusted the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth to you and to me. And so, what are we going to do with that? Paul declares clearly and beautifully that the charge of the local church is to to be a church of prayer, to pray for one another, to pray for our leaders, to pray for our enemies, to pray for the nations. The local church has a global mission to pray. And so as we close this morning, just a few ways that we can live out that calling to pray in our own lives. First is simple, just pray for one another. Make an effort to pray for the prayer request that will be submitted uh, this week to the prayer chain, and all our prayer requests are, are posted to Realm. If you're not a part of Realm, not a part of the, the prayer chain group, uh, write on your connection card that's a part of your bulletin that you want to join Realm and place those in the offering bags here in a few moments. So that's one way. Just, just be faithful in praying for all of these different requests. Another way, I want you to, to take a moment and look around you. Right now, look, look around you. See the people that are closest to you. And I want you to, to grab a, a pen or, or grab your phone and, and write down the names of five people that are closest to you. If you don't know them, ask them. That's okay. You can ask them right now. Write their names down. And let's go ahead and throw this next slide up. The New Testament is filled with prayers 
In fact, the book, I mean, the Old Testament is too. The book of Psalms is basically a prayer book. So you could do this with Psalm 100 or 1 through 150 if you wanted to, too. Write down one of these different passages from Paul. Right next to those five names. And commit for this next week to pray what Paul prays for those people that you wrote down. You can write down all those passages. You can write down one of them. It doesn't matter. There's enough in there to to work through for, for weeks just for going off of one of them. If Paul says, I thank God for your wisdom, or I'm going to pray for for wisdom and insight, well, pray for wisdom and insight for those names that you wrote down. If Paul prays that that they would live a life worthy of the calling of the Lord Jesus, pray that those people would live lives that are worthy of the calling of the Lord Jesus. And keep that with you, and let's do that this week. Let's start by being a people who who commit to praying for one another. All of these prayers that are up there, they're they're just different prayers from from Paul to various churches. And if we want to pray, and if we want to pray the right way, this is a great way to learn how to do it. To learn what God focuses on. It starts right here. It doesn't have to be a long prayer. It'll be short. Charles Spurgeon is one of the greatest English-speaking preachers known in history. He said, I've never prayed for more than five minutes, but I never went more than five minutes without praying. That's powerful. It doesn't have to be long, but it should be heartfelt. So commit to doing that this week. Second, wrestle with this question. Are, Are our prayers big enough? Are we primarily focused just on ourselves or our family or our friend? Now, there's nothing wrong with those prayers. I pray for my wife, my kids, my family every single day. Don't plan on stopping anytime soon. But when was the last time that we prayed for our missionaries? When's the last time you prayed for our missionaries? When's the last time you prayed for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth? A.B. Simpson was the founder of the Christian Missionary Alliance, and he would, it's said that he would wake up every morning, fall on his knees, and he would clutch a globe, and he would just weep in prayer. The thought that the nations existed without the knowledge of the truth was just too much for him to bear. Is the same true for us. I pray that we would be a people that when we gather and when we scatter, that we would embrace the world in prayer. A wonderful resource for this, and I've mentioned this before, Operation World. It's online. You can probably, I think you can subscribe to a, to a newsletter where each day they'll send you a different country to pray for and some specific requests on how to be praying for them. Great, great resource to, to focus your, your mind on the, the, the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And the last thing is just to, to repent of prayerlessness. In our own lives, in our church, Paul, Paul opens this passage and he says, hey, you know what? This is how the church should be run. That's how he says, first of all, here. He says, pray. I think all too often, that's not the case for us. And so, let's repent of the prayerlessness in our church and in our own lives that we would commit to being a praying church that we would be 
committing to be a praying people, people who pray day in and day out for those who are around us, for, for one another, for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth, that we just take this charge seriously to be a part of this global mission that God has for us. Let's be a local church with a global mission to pray. Let's pray. Father, we first and foremost just rejoice that we are able to approach you in prayer. That your word says that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. And it's because, even as Paul says in this passage, it's because of what he, Jesus, has done for us. So we say thank you for that, that we are able to to come before you. We say thank you that you hear our prayers, that you delight to answer prayers. And so, Father, we just first and foremost want to, to say, forgive us for the times where we haven't prayed. Forgive us for the times where we have neglected the the prayer for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And God, we ask that you would help us to be a people who pray. That we would pray each and every day heartfelt prayers. They don't have to be long. Earnest prayers. As often as you bring it to mind for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Thank you, Jesus, that you are at work and that you, again, delight in answering prayer. We ask that you would do that through our humble offering of prayers. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.